As I argue in Tolkien's Modern Reading, I think it gives us a much better understanding of how the Lord of the Rings is so powerful because he's like a bridge between the medieval and the modern world. He's drawing lots of stuff from medieval literature, absolutely. But he's doing it and he's making it accessible and powerful and he's transmuting it, he's transforming it. Um, and he can do that precisely because he's engaged with modernity, he's reading modern literature, he's, he's up to date on the news, he's interested in what's going on in the world. Hello, welcome to And If Love Remains. This is your host, Mike Levitt, and I have on the line today um, somebody that, that I've, I'm really excited to speak with. Uh, this is Dr. Holly Ordway. Um, she is the Fellow of Faith and Culture of the Word on Fire Institute. She's a visiting professor at Houston Baptist University and holds a PhD in English from uh, the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. She is the author of several books, including one that we're going to be uh, talking mostly about today, which is Tolkien's Modern Readings, Middle Earth, Beyond the Middle Ages. And that will be coming out in January, and I'm very excited to talk about that. Um, uh, she is a, a published poet and a, a subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies. Her academic work focuses on the writings of the Inklings, and especially that of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who will be the subject of our conversation today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ordway. Well, thank you for having me on. It's it's my pleasure. Um, very quickly, um, I want to just spend a couple of minutes. I've, I've been a, a long admirer of the Word on Fire Institute, and, and can you just tell me just very quickly what that is and um, what uh, what your role is there as the uh, fellow of faith and culture? Well, as as many of your viewers might have noticed, um, you know, Word on Fire in general is um, ministry, Bishop Barron's ministry for evangelization um, with a special focus for trying to reach the, the spiritually unaffiliated, the nuns, N-O-N-E, um, and also Christians who just fallen away or, you know, never properly understood the faith. Um, and the Word on Fire Institute is sort of what we might call a sort of a Catholic think tank. Um, it's the educational branch um, of the Word on Fire movement. Um, it's, it's relatively new. It's only um, two years old. Uh, and so we've already done a lot with um, providing courses and materials. Um, it, it's a subscription-based um, program. People get courses, um, you know, events, lots of material um, just for you know, being formed uh, as Catholics, as Christians, um, and with the goal to really equip a you know, whole, you know, whole army of people to go out there, um, you know, and, and fight the good fight for sharing the gospel. Uh, and so my role as fellow of faith and culture um, is to be writing, um, to be speaking, um, to be developing courses, and especially as the fellow of faith and culture for engaging with culture and helping people to see the way that we can, you know, be reading the culture, understanding what our culture is like and what people's questions really are so that we can answer them better. Um, you know, part of the focus of my my work for years has been to say, you know, we have to understand what people's questions are before we can properly answer them. Um, and also, you know, to engage, find ways to, you know, present the truth of the faith in a way that's engaging. And my my literary critical work, you know, on, on Francis Lewis, Taylor Inklings, and Tolkien 
um, is really, you know, in line with this because those, you know, devout Christians whose work really has helped so many people, including myself, to be interested in the question of Christianity. And then from there to ask the necessary question, could it be true? Um, and, then, and then discover, yes, it actually is true. Right. So this, this book that we're talking about isn't specifically, it isn't an apologetics book at all. It's, it's a literary critical book, but I think it's adjacent. It's in line with that whole vision of trying to, um, trying to engage culture as Christians in a, in a thoughtful way. And, and I really have appreciated that about the, about Word on Fire. And as a non-Catholic, um, I can truly appreciate the, um, cultural apologetics, I guess you would say, um, that you guys, that you guys do and have done. Um, I, I've, I've been following Bishop Barron's work and, and, um, just, I, I've been really impressed with, with all the, all the people that have been associated with the Institute. So it's, I did not know that when I contacted you first, so I really, it's a pleasure to, to know that as well. And uh, um, let's let's dive a little bit into Tolkien. I mean, he is such um, an icon. Uh, I, I, you know, there are there are very few authors that you can say, um, you know, there's there is before uh, before Tolkien and after Tolkien. I mean, he like everything after Tolkien. Uh, especially in the fantasy genre and things like that, but everything written, he ha- plays, he has like a shadow role in it in one form or another. So let's talk about Tolkien, maybe a little bit who he was and, um, and maybe why his, his writing really does resonate um, to this day with us. Well, I think most people will recognize um, Tolkien as the author of the Lord of the Rings um, and then also of the Hobbits. <clears throat> the Hobbit was written first um, and then the Lord of the Rings came about as the sequel to The Hobbits. Um, his publishers asked him to write, you know, a, a follow-up volume because The Hobbit had been so amazingly successful. And so for a while, he worked on what was called The New Hobbits. Um, and then eventually it became a, a darker, more mature, uh, much more complex book over more than 10 years um, that, that became what we now have as The Lord of the Rings. Um, and he also, I mean, he spent his entire life writing masses and masses of stories um, in addition to all of his academic work, because he was a professor um, of, of English literature, medieval literature um, and language. And uh, he wrote this entire, what's called the legendarium, um, some of which was published after his death as the Silmarillion and other sections of it have been published in the years since then um, by the late Christopher Tolkien, his, his son, who brought out books like The Fall of Gondolin, Baron and Luthien, books like that. Um, again, from this massive stock of, of writing that Tolkien did and fiddled with for decades, trying to make it perfect and not publishing it. He was the great procrastinator for publishing. He was a total perfectionist. So we're quite, we're quite lucky that we have Lord of the Rings um, at all. And, uh, and indeed, Lou, uh, Tolkien acknowledged a great debt, what he called the unpayable debt, to his friend C.S. Lewis, because it was Lewis's persistence and encouragement that got The Lord of the Rings published. Um, if it weren't for Lewis, it would probably still be being polished in manuscript up until the very day of his death. Right. Wow. And, and he's... and. Um... And and it's funny because it, 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 Tolkien and Lewis are so tied at the hip. I mean, in, in some ways, we would not have um, very much of, of of 
Lewis as he is without Tolkien and, and their friendship. Yeah, I mean, they they had a, a very long standing friendship, you know, all, you know, through Lewis's life. He, he died um, 10 years before uh, um, Tolkien did. And Tolkien had a profound influence um, on Lewis's conversion to Christianity. Uh, you know, he because Tolkien was a devout Catholic all of his life. Um, and so when Lewis met him, um, Lewis was at that point not a believer at all and was going through this process of, you know, gradually having kind of philosophical conversion um, and accepting theism and then still, you know, not convinced about Christianity. And it was in the famous Addison's Walk conversation where Tolkien um, really put the case for this, the Christ story being both a profound myth, a profound meaningful story, and something that really happened in history. That's the great both and of Christianity that Tolkien really grasped, I think, very, very beautifully. And he shared that with Lewis, and that was pivotal um, for Lewis then becoming a Christian. So in a way, we could almost say that Tolkien's kind of the godfather of books like Mere Christianity. Right. Oh, I, yeah, that's that's fabulous. So, I guess I guess the debt is uh, paid both ways in in a, in a sense. Um, so, what? Who is Tolkien as as far as his his um his professional work? Because I think that's really important to understand. Even his his fiction, like like um, who was he? What did he What did he work on? What were her, his passions? Well, he was, he would have called himself fundamentally a philologist, which is someone who studies the origins of language. Um, and he worked in medieval, medieval literature, you know, focusing on um, Old English and its development, Old English, Middle English. Um, so his scholarly work is is very much in that area of, you know, of, of early, you know, Middle English texts. Um, and he was extremely, uh, I mean, he was a world-class scholar in that area. I mean, his, his, his work alone um, brought the Anglo-Saxon poem um, Beowulf into its current present place of, of honor. Because you know, now we think of Beowulf, oh, that's, that's a famous poem. You know, you know, people study it in school. Right. Well, Tolkien was the one who, who pretty much dragged it out of obscurity where it had been pretty much ignored and said, this is a really important piece of literature in its own right. In this famous essay called um, Beowulf, The Monsters and the Critics. Um, and he just completely changed the course of scholarship on Beowulf. Um, and that's just that's just him in his professional professional life. So he would be a significant figure even if he had never written a word um, of fiction. Uh, but it turns out that because he was such an absolute genius, a tremendously fruitful creative mind, that from his earliest youth, he was, inventing languages. He was um, draw drawing and painting. He was also a visual artist, although people tend not to realize that. Wow. And writing poet, <clears throat> writing poetry, writing stories. Um, and, you know, and, and that out of, out of that great creativity comes what ultimately he's most famous for, which is his, his creative work. Now, right. since, um, since his academic work was primarily in medieval literature, that has led a lot of people to assume quite wrongly that that was the only thing that he cared about. They've, there's a really mistaken but very, very sticky idea that Tolkien was just stuck in the past, like he lived in the Middle Ages. Yes, I've heard this. Yeah, and that's, that was really 
what uh, I set out to, to investigate uh, when it came to do this book and to find out, is that actually true? And discovering, well, no, it's not. Okay, so so let's let's talk about that for a second. We're we're talking with Dr. Holly Ordway, uh, the author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, um, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. Uh, there uh, will be coming out this January in 2021, um, and there will be links to to pre-orders in the in the show notes as well as to um, the sites where you can receive that. But let's talk a little bit about that that misgiving and what what were you you trying to solve? What what picture were you were you trying to to find out um with your book well this this project has been an absolute voyage of discovery because i've i've been working on tolkien for for decades um you know he's he's somebody who's been at the at the really the center of my literary critical work um ever since i was doing my phd uh which i did on, on modern fantasy and In fact, after- if you don't mind, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I actually I want to go back a little bit. Like where, and and uh, and I meant to do this. Where, how, how did you first discover Tolkien, and 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 how did that become your passion? Where you decided to do your doctorate on him, and and like how did that happen? Well, I I don't even know exactly when I first started reading Tolkien because it was, it was so long ago. I was a little girl and encountered the Hobbits, um, and then read the Lord of the Rings, and they were just part of my early reading, um, and I love them, along with the Chronicles of Narnia, um, they just became part of the kind of, you know, furniture of my imagination. So I Mm -hmm. really loved those stories. And it was um, Tolkien who got me interested in the wider genre of fantasy um, and how did fantasy work, because I encountered actually as a teenager, his essay on fairy stories, in which he um, looks at well, what is fantasy? How does it work? Um, where does it come from? So that got me interested pretty early on with the, the question of where where does the Lord of the Rings fit amongst other kinds of books, um, you know, of, of his own day and, and of before. And I started reading some of the some of those earlier ones, you know, reading George MacDonald and William Morris a little bit, Lord Dunsany, even even as a teenager. Um, and then I went off and you know began to get my degrees in English. Um, my my when I first started my graduate studies, actually I, I was going to be a medievalist again, kind of influenced by Tolkien. Right. Um, but then I decided that I, I did in fact want to work on contemporary literature. So I sh- when I did my PhD, um, I focused it on modern fantasy. So it wasn't just on Tolkien; it was on modern fantasy as a genre. I wanted to s- try to trace its development. Where did it come from? What is it like? But Tolkien, as you noted at the beginning, is such a pivotal figure. He he basically transforms the entire genre of fantasy. Um, nobody nobody can avoid reckoning with him. And, and indeed, I think in some ways you can argue that he hasn't had a good effect on fantasy in general because everybody has been drawn into either imitating him or trying to fight against him. Right. And it's, it's created a lot, I think of creative tension, um, because he's, because his work was so amazing. So I did, I did my dissertation on that. Um, and you know, that was all well and good. I went on, you know, began my, my academic, my teaching career. And I just kept coming back sort of mentally to that question of, well, okay, I have a better sense now of the context of the Lord of the Rings because I had been researching the history of the genre. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder, you know, of those early fantasy novels, I wonder if Tolkien had read them. I wonder if he knew them. I knew that he knew some of them, 
But I started to wonder, you know, had he read a lot of these contemporary fantasy authors and what did he think of them? So I set out to research that. And then I started to realize, like, actually, I should look at what he had read more broadly of modern literature, because the more that I started digging into it, the more that I found that he had read. Um, and it began to, I began to realize that it helped to, to start to answer a question that I had, had long had, which is how do you account for the power of the Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Because it's such a powerful book. It speaks just so directly to the concerns and themes of the 20th century, the 21st century, power, dominion, technology, the misuse of technology, um, all of these things. And now and we're definitely I, even reckoning with today. I mean, this is, so, it's still so poignant to talk absolutely. about. Absolutely. I mean, it really, it's a, it's an utterly relevant to the moment relevant book. And I've, I mean, I've studied medieval literature. I love medieval literature. It's wonderful, but it began to kind of be borne upon me that it really, you couldn't account for this power of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits just by positing that he's drawing all of his inspiration from medieval sources, which is what I think most people typically assume. They think he's a medievalist. He was strictly focused on that. He's just backwards looking. He's just reading, you know, the, you know, Chaucer and, you know, Beowulf. That's all he cares about. Right. Um, and if that's the case, how could he possibly have written a book that speaks to the 21st century so so deeply and profoundly? That just doesn't make sense to me as a reader or as a literary critic. And that ended up kind of being the guiding question as I looked at, well, what, what had he read? What really did he think of, of modernity? And as I as I did my research again, this you know this unfolded this you know from the from the asking of that question, where did the Lord of the Rings really come from, um, to to now is really ten years um, of looking at every possible evidence I could find of what he had actually read, um, not just what we, he might have read, but what he actually we can show that he read or owned the book, um, and finding like golly he he knew a lot of authors. He read widely. He thought seriously about them. Some of the stuff he, he liked was very surprising. Um, and it, it made sense of it. I, so now, as I argue in Tolkien's modern reading, I think it gives us a much better understanding of how the Lord of the Rings is so powerful because he's like a bridge between the medieval and the modern world. He's drawing lots of stuff from medieval literature. Absolutely. But he's doing it and he's making it accessible and powerful and he's transmuting it. He's transforming it. Um, and he can do that precisely because he's engaged with modernity. He's reading modern literature. He's he's up to date on the news. He's interested in what's going on in the world. It's that both and that that I think is a key insight into Tolkien's creative imagination. Well, and it's, it's interesting because I think I mean, you, you really point to his readings uh, and, I, and I've, I've, I'm by no means a Tolkien expert, um, but, uh, but I have <laughs> watched several documentaries and uh, it's interesting. Like a lot of times people seem to um, focus on his experience with world war one, um, his um, uh, more of his more experiential um, things that, that 
allowed him to to take these um, medieval tropes, these medieval ideas, and 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 focus them. And it sounds to me like you're you're saying that while that might be true, we're neglecting a whole other aspect of his life, which is what was the main focus of his life, which was literature. It was language, and and how that um, played a role in developing these um, ideas and and the 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 way these books um, feel and, and, and act. Well, I think we really have to, to um, do justice to that important work on his World War One experiences, because that was really significant in starting to make even my research possible, because uh, John Garth's book, Tolkien in the Great War, is just magisterial. It's just tremendously mm-hmm. important in Tolkien scholarship, because up until he wrote that book, really there hadn't even been any attention to Tolkien's involvement in this most massive of modern catastrophes, you know, the, one of the world wars. Um, people had almost not even really noticed it, um, which, which was a huge gap. And one of the things that, that Garth did and the people who have then built on his work was to say, wait, wait, wait. Um, sure, his, his research was in, you know, medieval literature, but he couldn't avoid this massive engagement with the, you know, modernity in the form of being in the trenches in World War One, And that, I think, was a really important kind of opening of the door to to start to make possible this this kind of research to say, well, look, you know, if if his experiences in his own life mean that he's relating with um, modernity in, in a powerful way, we should expect that that's not going to be hermetically sealed off in a little compartment labeled the Great War. You know, right. we should expect that he's going to be relating to, you know, modernity in the form of of literature as well. Uh huh. Interesting. Yeah. So l- let me ask you, what were maybe um, you mentioned that there was a few surprises. What what were a, a couple of things that that you found that um, maybe surprised you or um, yeah, let's just start there. What, what surprised you about some of the books that he actually enjoyed and, and read and, and related to? Well, one of the things that, that came to my attention was the way that he has been too often just bundled with C.S. Lewis, um, as if anything that Lewis liked, Tolkien liked, anything that Lewis didn't like, Tolkien didn't like, as if they were, you know, conjoined twins. Um, right. And they're not. And one of the things, one of the examples of their differences in taste or differences in views is that Tolkien, um, for instance, he read with interest uh, the work of James Joyce. He engaged um, seriously with um, an early section of Finnegan's Wake. And this is, Finnegan's Wake is about as bafflingly modernist as you can possibly get. Um, And it's something that Lewis just dismissed as, you know, ridiculous. Um, but Tolkien actually wrote a whole page of notes um, about it, um, thinking about like what what Joyce was doing with language. He took it seriously, and it, he didn't necessarily he didn't like all of what Joyce was doing. But I found it very interesting that he was willing to take seriously this very modernist author and what he was trying to accomplish. So that was that was one surprise. Um, another surprise was discovering that Tolkien loved science fiction. Um, uh-huh. He named Isaac Asimov as one of his his favorite authors. He loved H.G. Wells. Uh, he he was actually he he was a reader of American pulp science fiction magazines. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, who knew, right? Uh, right. So how did maybe how did he relate to some of um, 
or how did how did some of these mod how did some of these modern writings find its way into the Lord of the Rings or some into his fiction? How how do we how do we find that and how can um, um, what might we look for as we're reading these books? Well, it's really interesting to note because. Um, Tolkien has often been just sort of labeled as somebody who, you know, was impossible to influence, denied all influences. So again, this was something that I, you know, was investigating, you know, what, what did he say? Did, did he admit to any influences? And it turns out that even he who supposedly never admitted to any influences directly names quite a few books that specifically influenced his writing. Um, and some of them are books that probably most people have not heard of. So, for example, um, he names a book called The Marvelous Land of Snurgs by the author E.A. Wick Smith. Um, he names that book as an unconscious source book for the hobbits. <laughs> and that's a pretty that's a pretty remarkable statement. And so I went back and I read The Marvelous Land of Snurgs. And, you know, the Snurgs turn out to be very Hobbit-like. They're these small people, very kind of childlike. They have many habits that are very similar to Hobbits, um, including a love of birthdays and feasting. And we might, you know, think, oh, it's just a, you know, accidental similarity. If it weren't for the fact that Tolkien had read the book and his whole, his children loved it before the writing of The Hobbit, and he names it. He says he calls it an unconscious source book for the hobbits. Again, you know, drawing from it. But again, we want to look at how his creative mind worked because it's not a question just of, you know, here is a source, you know, source X for item Y in his book. That's a simplistic way of looking at it that's not at all accurate to what his creative imagination was like. Um, he himself used the image of a tree of tales and of the of a mulch, um, the leaf mold of his imagination. So really, his reading was like all these leaves falling down on the forest floor and then slowly being digested and pulled up into the tree and, and put forth into new forms. Oh, wow. So we have The Marvelous Land of Snurgs, he names as a source book um, for The Hobbits, but he also names Sinclair Lewis's novel Babbitt as also having an influence on the development of of the hobbits, of their name, and also of their of their personality. And you couldn't really get much more different because the Marvel Son of Snurgs is a children's fantasy. And Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt is an American work of serious literary realism. Um, they're very different. And yet Tolkien right. names both of them as material that helps to create uh, the hobbits. So how, how much does that speak to his genius, that he's able to... And, and I, um, I'm a musician by training, so I, I can I can see this in, in great geniuses, you know, where they can take ideas that are so disparate and able to, um, you know, put them together in such a way that, that it creates a new thing that's that's bigger and bolder. Um, and and um, and I imagine that that's somewhat what what Tolkien is doing. And I'm, I'm wondering maybe how he's how he's done that where he's and you've mentioned you know some of these books, but but. Is it, or would you would you attribute it to his genius to, that he's able to just do that? Yes, I mean I think that really is where we see a, very clearly a, an aspect of his genius, and I think one that hasn't been sufficiently appreciated. So I hope that's one of the things that Tolkien's modern reading can do is to bring out the way that you know he absolutely transforms 
transforms his material. He, he draws it in and he makes it into something new. And to see the way that his mind is at work um, is just kind of awe-inspiring. So one of the, as I was looking at how did he relate to what he read, um, I found that sometimes he would have influence in the form of um, kind of giving him ideas, um, giving him sort of suggestions or, you know, for what he might do. So for example, um, he read an early, a book by the, the uh, author William Morris, uh, The House of the Wolfings. Um, and then he saw that Morris had used a kind of a mixed form of prose with poetry intermingled. And he decided that he wanted to try that. So that was one, that's an example of an influence by getting an idea for how an author might just tackle the form of, right. of a story. And we know that we know that he was influenced in this way because he writes to his future wife, Edith, and says that inspired by this book by Morris, he's going to try his own hand at a mixed prose and verse story. So we have that kind of influence. Right. Um, we also have um, where he's drawing on what I would say is source material. So as another example of a, um, a source that he names, um, there's a book um, called The Black Douglas by uh, the author S.R. Crockett, long out of print and forgotten. It's an adventure story. And Tolkien um, names, names that and says that there's a scene in it of wolves that was the source material for the warg scene in The Hobbit, where the wolves are, you know, chasing the hobbits and they and Gandalf go up the trees. Right. Well, I've read, went back and read, um, you know, Crockett's The Black Douglas. And indeed, there's a scene that's very, very similar to that. Um, and Tolkien, again, he named that and said that the warg scene was derived in part from that scene in Crockett. But what was fascinating is to see the way that Tolkien improved his source material. What he does in The Hobbit is more exciting and more kind of thematically resonant than, than the source. So again, we see that he doesn't just pick up things, he transforms them, he improves them. And then we also have um, what I call influence by opposition, where there's okay. a lot of examples where he sees how someone is doing something and he says, no, I can do a better job than that. Um, or no, I want to, I don't like the, the approach that you take, I'm going to do the opposite. Um, and so we, we see this, uh, for instance, there's the, the famous, what's called the wager with him and C.S. Lewis, where they say, you know, there really isn't enough in modern fiction of the kind of thing that we like. Right. We want to try our hand at doing something better. And, uh, and so Lewis sets out to write a space travel story, which becomes out of the silent planet. And Tolkien sets out to write a time travel story, which he never finished. Very typical Tolkien. Um, <laughs> it's called The Lost Road. Um, but again, the significance here. Tolkien had to know the science fiction genre very well to be able to say that none of it was really quite hitting what he wanted to hit. He read it, he, he saw it, and he thought, it's just not doing quite what I, what I wish it were doing. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to do something himself. Um, and that's a form of influence by opposition. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, I, so... That kind of takes me to to another point I wanted to discuss is is you know when we're talking about modern reading or modern um, modernism I guess we're really a lot of it is can be focused on um, post uh, Christian ideas and, and things like that and I'm wondering um, how uh, how that influenced if it what he read and what um, 
how that influenced his, his writings. Cause he is above all else, he, a Catholic, a Christian, a believer in Christ. And, and, you know, um, as, as you mentioned, you know, a, an evangelist in, in, in helping C.S. Lewis become a Christian. So, so how do some of these po- or, or some of these modern readings or these modern books that may have been, um, uh, anti-Christian or, or post-Christian, how did that influence what he thought and did? Well, I think in many ways, Tolkien can be a, a model um, for Christians as readers, because he was, as you noted, he was a devout Christian, um, very serious about his faith uh, throughout his whole life, um, and very forthright about saying that that he was a Christian, that he was a Catholic. Um, but when we find, we look at his reading, he was able to read and enjoy a very wide range of authors, including many that he had pretty fundamental disagreements with. So he's able to engage thoughtfully and indeed to enjoy the work of people that he really differed with pretty fundamentally. And I think it it shows, first of all, confidence in his faith. He's not threatened by these authors. It doesn't disturb him. Um, But also a kind of intellectual hospitality that he's willing to, you know, find what's good in what he's reading and, and name what's bad. So for instance, um, one of the authors that he read um, is a fantasy author called E.R. Edison, who wrote uh, books such as The Worm Ouroboros, which a few people might have heard of today. It's not many, but some. Um, <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> well, yeah. I, there's a Actually, as a, as a bit of a side note, one of the things about doing this research is that I actually went and read these books. If I found that Tolkien had mentioned something, that he'd read something. I went and read it, tracked it down, got a copy. And that meant reading a lot, a lot, a lot of books that are long forgotten, um, long out of print. And Probably hard to helpful. find, yes. <laughs> yeah, and that was really helpful because, you know, we can we can end up with a distorted picture of his context if we only look at the things that have been, you know, reprinted or, or get attention today. If we really want to understand his intellectual context, we need to look at what were the bestsellers of his time? And some of them are books that he, we've never heard of, um, like, you know, E.R. Edison, uh, which probably, yeah, people haven't heard of. Now, Tolkien really admired Edison's literary works. He said that he had read all of Edison's um, writings. And it, certainly he meant, I think, at least all of his fiction um, fantasy writings. And he called him a, a great master, you know, of, of creating imagined worlds. Pretty high praise from Tolkien. But he also said that the philosophy that Edison was putting forth was evil and cruel. So he disagrees pretty fundamentally with the philosophical views that this author holds, but he's able to recognize the literary skill and the craft of the work that he's doing. And I think this is very characteristic of of Tolkien's, of, of his mind and his approach. And again, this is that influence by opposition. Can can he can he do better? <laughs> right, right, and 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 I think that's I think it's important. Like like if you find somebody who's well crafted that you disagree with fundamentally, um, you know that that's the the challenge is is can you can you match that? Can you um, are you able to to um, engage with those? arguments, um, whether in literary form or in, in essay form or however it comes, you know, can you engage with them and, and, um, you know, and, and confound them? Because I, I think it's really important, um, 
as Christians that we that we are willing to face ideas head on. And and I think that is such an important thing that, that we can learn from him. Yeah, I mean, it really shows his his fundamental integrity of mind that if he saw something good, he approved of it. He approved of the good of it. If he if he thought it was well done, he said it was well done. Um, he didn't, you know, put little ideological tags and say, well, I, I can't possibly enjoy Edison's fantasy because I disagree with his philosophy. Mm, he was very yeah. clear, okay, I disagree with the philosophy, but the literary art is is good. Um, and I think that that takes a strength of mind. It takes um, a knowledge of one's faith. It, it takes, you know, a, a sort of discipline. But I think it's fundamentally what we should be aiming for. Um, and, you know, and, and being able to appreciate the good wherever we see it. And conversely, Tolkien was not one to appreciate you know, or to approve of something that was badly done just because it was by one of his fellow Christians. So, for instance, he um, took issue with the with the um, Catholic writer Hilaire Belloc um, for some of the things that Belloc had said, very much in, in praise of you know the Southern Latin cultures. You know, Belloc was apparently very dismissive of of the culture of of the North, and Tolkien, you know, fired back against that and actually did a a, a lecture challenging Belloc um, on that. Sadly, the lecture has not survived, but we know that he, that he did it. So he wasn't afraid to challenge people who shared his faith, um, as well as he was, wasn't afraid to recognize where someone who didn't share his faith had something that was well done. That's that's wonderful. Um, and I, I, I want to finish up a little bit with, with a question, uh, maybe a little bit more personal, um, Dr. Ordway. Uh, it's always true for me whenever I allow a great artist to kind of come into my life and, and that truly to truly influence me that it changes me and and i know obviously tolkien has been a big part of your life um how has this project specifically maybe changed you or helped you or or how has it um molded you and 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 uh, what have you learned from it well i think fundamentally when it comes to thinking about the subject of of my work i've come to a just an, a much deeper appreciation and admiration for tolkien and considering that I had such a high view of him to begin with, that's kind of saying something. Right. But I felt, I mean, basically 10 years of trying to get into his head, as it were, read what he had read, find out what he thought, um, it really has helped me just to appreciate him as as a man. So I learned a lot about his life as well, got a much more well-rounded picture of him um, as a person. A lot of things that I didn't, you know, didn't realize, filling in the depth um, you know, like for instance, how much he he was very attentive to his grandchildren, um, cared you know deeply about his relationship with them. He was a very um, you know serious, attentive father and grandfather and great grandfather. Uh, there's a great story of one of his um, one of his friends recounting that he came over to uh, visit the elderly Tolkien and found him on hands and knees on the floor playing trains with his great grandson. Um, I mean, that's just. That's, That's heartwarming. just moving um, that here we have this great author who is, you know, playing choo-choo trains with, with a little child um, without any without any sense of that it was below his dignity or anything like that. Um, he, he had this deep humility, I think. And so that has made him, I think, really a positive model for me as as a person, as an academic, you know, that we should take our work seriously, but not take ourselves too seriously. Um and, and that's just, you know, cause you can, you can study someone and find out that maybe their work is really great, but 
but the person himself isn't maybe as good as you hoped and you're kind of disappointed. And I've had that happen with other figures that I've, that I've studied, but it was the opposite for Tolkien. The more that I learned about him, you know, he, he certainly would have been the first one to say that he wasn't perfect and that, you know, he had his faults, but the more that I got to know him, truly the more I loved and admired him and respected him and thought what a genuinely good man like a good man and a great author. And that's, it's been a privilege um, to sort of kind of get to know him as it were through, through this research. That's, that's beautifully said. I, and I appreciate that. We're talking to Dr. Holly Ordway, the author of the book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. Um, I'd really strongly recommend anybody who is a lover of the Lord of the Rings or Tolkien, um, that this this might be a really good book to have to get a get an idea um, to get another idea of um, um, where Tolkien was is coming from and 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 uh, and maybe a, a a more fuller picture of of what of who he is as a person and as an author. Um, I want to kind of give you the last word. Is there something else that that we should mention about your book about your work that you'd like to to share? Um, on our show today. Well, I would actually just like to, to point out that um, this book, although it is an academic book, it's got, you know, loads and loads of um, end notes in it and in bibliography, um, all that. Uh, I'm really focusing on, on trying to be accessible to really anybody who enjoys Tolkien. Um, so I made it as much as possible. I made it very readable. Um, I want it to be something that if you enjoy the Lord of the Rings, if you enjoy the Hobbit, then you can pick up this book and, you know, and find out more about your favorite author and learn about him. And then if you want to, you could also, you know, look at the bibliography and, and learn more and, and go deeper. Um, so it's, you know, it's got the academic depth, but I wrote it very intentionally to be engaging for anybody, you know, even if you maybe only seen the films um, and you've never read the book, well, maybe this will give you that intriguing idea of like, oh, well, you know, this, this Tolkien guy, he seems kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> right. And there's a, I'm very pleased about this. There's a photo gallery. There's um, oh, yes. 40 images in it. So it's got pictures. Um, and so uh, that's, that's good fun. So I was just encourage people, you know, it's a, it's a book for anybody really who's, who's interested in Tolkien. Absolutely. And, and I want to thank you so much for being on my show and, and, uh, and talking about your passion, um, and, and, you know, kind of infusing us with a little bit of that. And, and, and so we can get to know J.R.R. Tolkien a, a little bit better. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Well, this is uh, Mike Levin with And If Love Remains, uh, speaking with Dr. Holly Ordway. There'll be um, in the show notes links to her um, upcoming book. Pre-orders are available now, so you can go and, and uh, you know, get an early, get a Christmas present for someone that, that will come in January. It'll be a great gift. Um, and uh, um, as well as links uh, um, to... Um, to her, to her website. And again, want to thank her for being on the show. This is And If Love Remains. <laughs>